Hello, lovely. It's Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is Healing Ourselves. Well, isn't that what we're all doing here? Healing ourselves. And we've been doing this here in this space, in this forum for almost six years. And what a powerful six years it has been. I mean, if you look back just six years ago, whether you discovered this show on the day that it came out or whether you've discovered it over the past few years, you could probably look back on that time and realize that a lot has changed, that you have grown and expanded in different ways, that you have come across new information that has opened new doors for you. And I hope that's what we're going to do more of today, because I think we have to be looking at healing ourselves from many different lenses. It's not just obviously a physical thing. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's not just an emotional thing, but there's many facets of ourself and life and things that we're moving through. And so my guest today, Dr. Shalmini Jan is a psychologist, scientist, and social profit leader. She's the founder and CEO of the Consciousness and Healing Initiative, CHI, a nonprofit collaborative accelerator that connects scientists health practitioners, educators, and artists to help lead humanity to heal ourselves. CHI was formed through Dr. Jan's deep desire to bring key stakeholders together to create a coherent and effective movement to move us beyond the models of disease thinking and sick care and into the study and practice of whole person healing and societal flourishing. Dr. Jan obtained her BA in neuroscience and behavior from Columbia University and her PhD degree from the SDSU UC San Diego Joint Doctoral Program in Clinical Psychology with a research focus in psychoneuroimmunology. Her award-winning research and her presentation of it has been featured in major media including Time, CNN, and Good Day LA as well as with two TEDx talks on healing and several documentaries. Her award-winning book with Sounds True, Healing Ourselves, Biofield Science and the Future of Health is available in booksellers worldwide. Dr. Jan is a member of the Evolutionary Leader Circle, faculty at Esalon and Omega Institutes and serves as a board member and scientific advisor for several nonprofits and social benefit companies, including Safe Harbor, Modern Spirit, and Mirabai. When she's not sharing her joy and passion for healing and empowerment, which she's going to do with us today, she also enjoys surfing, singing, and spending time with her wonderful family. So with no further ado, let's welcome uh, Dr. Shamini Jan to the show. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you on the show. Great to be here, Shauna. Thanks for having me. Yes. And, you know, I was reading your book and we're going to talk more about that before we dive into all that goodness. Um, one of the things that was coming up for me is our journey. 
in life. And you talk about being a kid growing up in the 80s. You talk about your natural curiosity. Um, and you're really bridging, in my perspective, only this this spirituality and science and how these two, you know, live together and how they are really one in a lot of ways as we start to understand the world in new ways. And I want you to take us back uh, to begin with to that curiosity as a kid. And, and if you look back now, you know, sometimes in life, we look back and we go, oh gosh, like I see why I was that curious, you know, to what I'm doing today and how this led me to your education, to science, and then to blending the world. So take me back to a little bit of your perspective as a young girl. Yeah, you know, curiosity is a good word and that there was definitely that, but honestly, there was also confusion. And I think this speaks to how a lot of people feel and kind of where we are on the pathway to integration as human beings, right? Because we grow up in these societies and systems that teach us that we have to separate parts of ourselves, including our spiritual experiences and, you know, our worldly experiences as if they're separate. So growing up, you know, in the East Indian Jan tradition, I always found this curious because on one hand, I'm reading these books about the subtle bodies and karma and how breathing can affect the autonomic nervous system. And I'm going to school and we're not talking about any of that. And, and yet the skeptic in me growing up in the West here, you know, going to schools here, I was the curiosity was really about the, what they were saying in those spiritual texts. How do we know? How do we know? Because school isn't teaching me this, right? So how can they say things like, if I do this certain type of breathing, it's going to harmonize my autonomic nervous system. How do these yogis know that, right? So even at that young age, it's like there was a part of me that wanted the data. And at the same time, when I would you know, go to school, I remember just this very pivotal point, which I also talk about in the book, where I was you know, doing my undergraduate work at Columbia University. We they just, neuroscience literally had started to come online. This was in the mid nineties. And you know, it was this part of the brain lights up when we lift our hand or whatever. I mean, that's really where we were at that time. <laughs> but they were saying, there's no change. There's no plasticity in the brain after age seven. So they're literally teaching us undergraduates this, you know. And I'm thinking again, how do they know? So, you know, what it speaks to for me, Shauna, and I think many of us can resonate with this. We were just chatting right before we actually formally began about the knowledge that we get from our intuition, right? And our, our deep inner knowing about things. And I think it's very curious that we have grown up in societies that almost tell us like we have to do one or the other. Right. I mean, I've heard so many healing practitioners almost be apologetic that they don't know or do science, you know, and at the same point, I can tell you as a person who's been conducting science and who is a healing practitioner, right, um, scientists desperately need healers to really get to the depths of what healing is. So it's, it was really always um, a passion for integration you know, both in myself, but also in these seemingly disparate areas that aren't disparate at all, right? They're just different languages. And I would say, you know, for the 20 plus years that I've been doing work and healing, now first in research and in my own practice, now in teaching, the key here, I think for all of us is really that integrative process. So that is acknowledging that we actually have access to all of these different ways of knowing, 
which are both intuitive and analytical and creative, like that's in every single one of us. Now, some of us choose to specialize in a certain area. You know, I chose to get my PhD in a fancy area called psychoneuroimmunology. You know, does that matter? Does that mean that I necessarily know more about healing than you do? I don't think so, right? It's just, I just learned a certain language and learned a certain way of exploring it, which can be useful for certain things. Like, for example, doing research that helps us get healing into the hospitals, because that's how we do it, right? We have to, we have to do research to first deepen our understanding and also uh, make sure that we know whether these kinds of practices are really working for patients and that they're not harmful and that they're repeatable and reliable. So that's why we do science. But if we just limited ourselves to studying it from the outside and we didn't get into the actual experience of it, um, as you know, I'm sure very well, being a practitioner, you're missing a lot of the boat, right? <laughs> yes. So, Yes. And you... You've done a lot of research, I think, around cancer and looking at, you know, how people you're talking about fatigue, I know was one of the things and how people were experiencing fatigue and like, and, and again, it goes to curiosity, like, why is this and why are people putting on, you know, being put on antidepressant medic medication for fatigue they're experiencing during, let's say, cancer or going through their chemo treatments and and I thought it was really fascinating because I think many times we look at whether it's a disease, whether it's, a, you know, something that someone's dealing with and we label it in a certain way, or we say it has to be this, or we don't know how to fix this, or we don't know how to make it better. And we're not looking beyond. And, and that's really what I feel like is going on on the planet right now is looking beyond what is like 3D, right? Like what is, what is the very like fundamental, like third dimension way of viewing it? And, and you brought up something that I think is so important, which is looking at it from different angles. Like how do we get the full view if we're not able, you know, I always imagine a circle, like a room that's a circle with doors going around the circle. And if I can't look in all the different doors, how do I see all the different perspectives and even be able to gather like what I feel is resonant or true if we're not, if we're only looking in one door? We're only looking through one lens. And I think, you know, that's what I was getting a lot from listening to your work and also reading the book is like, gosh, like what if we just open our consciousness and perspective to look at a much more global view? Absolutely. A global view, a systems view, an interconnected view, and a multidimensional view, right? I mean, that's really because we're multidimensional beings Everything that we've learned from the science, you know, both from the areas of psychoneuroimmunology, biofield science, all these fancy terms, what does it mean? Like, what are they saying? They're basically saying that all these things that we think we've honestly, that medicine has thought to be separated are not separated at all, right? Including our minds and our bodies and our psyches and our spirits. So the great thing is that means that there's so many powerful ways for us to heal and they all interact, right? So whether we're working on nutrition, exercise, spiritual awakening, all of these things connect, you know? And I'm sure all of us have experienced that if we do, for example, a fast, whether it's for spiritual religious purposes or for just cleaning our bodies, if that was our intention. We can feel the differences in our vibration, right? We can feel the differences in our consciousness because we, we are an interconnected system. 
And I also love what you said about multidimensionality. You know, I recently came back from a really wonderful meeting at Esalen Institute, if you know of that place. I'm yes. pleased to teach there guest faculty. I love teaching there. It's a beautiful place. And occasionally they have these special think tanks that they call CTR meetings for the Center for Theory of Research at Esalen. And this one is on the subtle bodies. So they invited a number of us to explore and discuss the subtle bodies. And I, was, I told them, I'm like, I'm a kid in Disneyland right now because I was surrounded <laughs> by all these humanity scholars who spoke the ancient languages, who read the ancient texts on the subtle bodies and were kind of describing it from the contemplative practitioner's point of view. And we did practices and they were really thrilled to hear about the empirical science behind subtle energy healing, which as you know, I've done a lot of. So we were mutually, you know, kind of in awe of each other's work. But one of the things that I learned, which was really interesting that I didn't know, was that there are different ways of even conceiving something like the subtle body and even subtle energy, right? Which I guess we'll get into and maybe unpack, but I assume your listeners are probably very familiar with, right? Um, and when, when they explore these from the different traditions, which by the way, traditions across the world, including Western and Eastern have always had ideas and experiences and described what these subtle bodies were, what their purpose was, but they're a little different in their descriptions. And one of the differences is some folks will describe it or certain subtle bodies as sort of ever present. You know, so we hear about people talking about the etheric field or the etheric matrix as an example, is, you know, sort of this uh, template of perfection from which the physical body arises, right? I've heard a lot of healers describe the etheric template this way. So it's kind of the sense that it's always there. And then there's also a sense for many of these traditions, including a lot of Western ones, that the subtle bodies are created. And they're created for in certain times and places and spaces for different things. And I actually went back to some of the teachings, for example, even in Jainism, my home spiritual tradition. And in there, there is a discussion of how adept practitioners might utilize a certain subtle body to connect with divine forces, right? For spiritual growth, liberation, teaching. But they're not always there and they're not always developed. So, you know, as a scientist, this fascinates me because you know, this is the stuff that is not easy for us to measure at all, but it really made me question. And I've been sitting with this question now for a while, for the last couple of months, it's really been sitting with me, which is what is the role of imaginal in healing, because we think about healing a lot from the conceptual, from the mental, from the conscious mind. You know, I grew up getting my PhD also in clinical psychology. It was a very traditional cognitive behavioral therapy type of base of the program. So we've learned a lot about how we can address core beliefs for healing, how we all, I think all of us now are, are pretty, you know, forgive the word woke to the fact that, you know, a lot of our distortions come from trauma and we all have it. So most people I think have a basic understanding of that at this point. Um, and, there, and we're learning about all the different ways that we can unravel trauma and be with trauma and allow for trauma itself to unravel and learn from it and grow from it. So we're learning all of that. And then there's this whole other deeper layer of the imaginal, right? And basically being in touch with the unknown, sitting in the great mystery of things that I believe is also a very powerful part of healing that honestly, I think most of us Western scientists haven't even tapped into yet. 
Yeah. You know, it's interesting. It's bringing up, so I'll give you an example of this because I think it's fascinating and I would be curious what your opinion is. So, so your area that you studied, right? Psychoneuroimmunology, very big word, um, not a word that I had ever heard before. And when I was writing my book, a lot of the information that I was sharing was not coming from what I would call my knowledge, my human knowledge base. Like, for instance, I had never run across that word in my life. And as I'm writing, the word comes through and I am like, what is that? Like, and, and I thought, I thought it was a made up word, like when it came through, cause I thought, oh, how interesting, like, you know, there we're blending like our immune system and the psychology. Right. And, and I, how you would put three words together, right. Just pick three words and kind of mush them together. And so I toyed with, you know, do I include this? Cause I don't, I'm, I, I mean, felt completely green. Like I have not studied this. I don't know this. Like I'm not even qualified to say this word in my book. And the guidance was use the word, look it up, read it, read about it, right? Like understand what this is because in the way it came through is like, this is an energy that, that it's almost like an energy behind a concept, right? Or a teaching that is, it's, it's time and it's needed on the planet and people need to familiarize themselves with the concept. And because the word is such a, a large word and, and so different, that people will actually, it will trigger them to like, wake up, you know, how we read sometimes and we, we zone out and, but, but you run into some big word and you go, Oh, what is that? I've never seen that before. And it was really fascinating because it was described to me, like, like it's a word that wakes people up because it's different. And it's, you know, it's something that stops you in your tracks for a second to even get it out of your mouth the first time. And, um, and so if we have so a joke fast. about that, Shauna, because we say, if you can say psychoneuroimmunology really fast seven times, you get your degree. <laughs> <laughs> I think Honestly, it's true. We say, we say P&I for short. We have way too long, you know, so mono, like multisyllabic words. And my husband's always joking about all our acronyms in our in our little scientific arena, you know. So we can say P&I. It's much easier to say. Yes. But I just think it's fascinating because it was really like it's the time for people to understand these connections. And so with your work, you're really talking about those connections. And for those that don't understand what P&I is, can you give us just a short description? of the the concept I mean here's the bottom line of what PNI or psychoneuroimmunology is it's exploring the role of the psyche in its connections with the nervous system and the immune system now we can extend this because there is a sister field called psychoneuroendocrinology and then if you want to get really crazy you can say PNI E or PNEI, psychoneuroendocrine immunology, right? It's like, <laughs> what's the point? What's the point? The point is that where 60 years ago, we thought our brains weren't connected to our immune system, our emotions didn't affect our health, you know, that there were no patterns in the way a, a physical disease presented and our psychological experience, we know, now know all of that is false. We know that actually there is a deep interconnection between all these things. We put all these things in boxes as if they're one thing, right? The immune system is something and it's separate from the nervous system. Well, half of the brain is immune because of all of the microglial cells and other immune cells that actually, actually exist in the brain. Um, there's micro, you know, micro uh, vessels of immune system in the brain itself. So it's speaking to the interconnection 
between all these things. And I love to also hone in on the word psyche, because to me, the psyche, not psycho, but psyche, (laughs) psychoneuroimmunology is the linchpin. And that's really the exciting. And I think the part that where it kind of lights somebody up and thinks about it, because it's like, oh, wait, psyche, which actually means spirit, that's what psyche actually means, is connected to neuroimmunology. My consciousness can affect me all the way down to the physical level. Well, yeah, because that's what the studies are showing. And, you know, it's both individual and collective psyches. And when there's so many places to go here in mainstream psychoneuroimmunology, people kind of just reduce psyche to psychological experiences and emotions and thoughts and things like that. So that's how mainstream psychoneuroimmunology sort of looks at those connections. What is the impact of depression on cardiovascular disease or what might positive emotions do to prevent disease or even prevent mortality, right? There's some good work going on in there. Um, But we can extend that even further when we look at the biofield, which is another term I guess we should explore. Yes. Fields of energy and information that guide our health. Some fields are measurable, electromagnetically measurable, some are not. So here we're talking about, you know, things like the EKG, like, you know, electrodes that we place on our chest to measure our heart rhythms. That's not controversial. We're measuring the biofield. We're measuring the biofield of the heart. And it tells us about our heart health. So we know about that. But what about the subtle aspects of the biofield? Like what we have called prana, chi, ki, subtle energy, you know, elan vital, all these different names that spoke to a vital life energy force that helped to guide our health. So this is another layer of the system where we're exploring the physicality, the emotionality, and the consciousness base and its effects on the energy system, if we want to call it that, right? And that's what biofield science is doing now. We're extending, I would say, in a way, we're extending psychoneuroimmunology where we're beginning to look more deeply at these psyche aspects, including what we call the energy component, which has been so overlooked and almost really, not almost, it has been kind of controversial or dismissed as woo-woo and, you know, all of that in mainstream science. And yet, what are we finding? You know, uh, we can talk, of course, about my own randomized placebo-controlled trials, as you've mentioned, with cancer-related fatigue, where we're seeing demonstrable and important, significant clinical outcomes of these healing practices for things like fatigue and pain and mental health, behavioral symptoms. But we're also seeing that on the physiological level. In our clinical studies, we're seeing movements and things like the rhythms of cortisol throughout the day for breast cancer survivors that we can't explain by placebo effects. And you know, as you know, I get into all of that in my book and kind of tell yes. the story of my own journey with this. Um, but beyond that, even my colleagues now at MD Anderson Cancer Center and others are looking at the power of consciousness and directed energy, energy healing in cell models of cancer, in animal models of cancer, and they're looking really deep, right? So they're not only able to reliably demonstrate that energy healing from a trained practitioner, and not just one, by the way, now they're looking at groups of several different kinds of practitioners, can not only reduce the number of cells, cancer cells in a Petri dish, for example, 
Whereas when you direct the energy to normal cells, they actually grow. So that's interesting. That's why we like to say it's not just energy, it's information. So we can unpack that later. Um, but uh, they're also showing in these animal models that energy healing, again, compared to these sham energy healing conditions, control groups, can actually reduce the spread of cancer in the body of these mice. So these are you know, very carefully controlled studies as you would test a drug, only it's, they're testing energy healing and not drugs. And they're seeing these downstream effects. They're looking at potential, what they like to call mechanisms. I don't like to call them mechanisms, but I say they're physiological pathways to help explain the effects. So they see reductions in inflammatory cytokines, which are immune transmitters related to the spread of tumor, tumor metastasis, as they call it. They're, they see changes in cell subsets that are consistent with the reduction in tumor spread. They're even seeing changes in cell signaling pathways, protein kinase pathways related to the energy healing work. And so they're really trying to drill down on these physiological pathways and signaling in the body related to the energy response, which is very cool, right? And serves that portion of society that needs to have that prove it model that says, I need to know that this is real. And the only way I'm gonna know that it's real is when I see it drilled down into the physiology in this way. It's, it's almost like some people need that real aha, you know, that it's, yes. it's only real physical, right? We call that, you know, the materialist paradigm, the physicalist paradigm. Okay, fine. Well, the studies are starting to demonstrate this now. And, you know, I'm really excited to see how much this work will help galvanize support more broadly for the healing practices research. Now, the research that I'm personally engaged in isn't so much with cells and animals, but with people, because as a psychologist, my questions are different. They're kind of like, does this work? Who does it work for? How reliable is it? Can we train people to do it? Can we alleviate the unnecessary suffering of you know, mental health afflictions that we're seeing on the planet right now? Because there's a lot of payoff with these consciousness-based approaches. You know, There's a lot of payoff. Not only can they be delivered at a distance, you don't have to necessarily have, again, an MD or PhD to do them. You can learn them. They're easily learnable. We can train people on how to connect more deeply with their own biofields. And there's so many fun and creative ways to do that, right? So this is tremendous because it's just leading us back to our power. It's leading us back to our healing power and the power of our consciousness. I'm curious your perspective, because you talked about ancient texts and reading ancient texts. And of course, a lot of ancient cultures like really do talk about the different healing modalities about, you know, subtle bodies and our energy systems and, you know, obviously using plants and all kinds of things grown in nature to heal the body, like really everything is on earth that we need to heal ourselves. Where did that end? Like, have you seen in your research, like, how did we get so far away in modern culture from understanding what would ultimately be all of our roots? Yeah, you know, it's, it's a really a multifaceted answer. And I'm not a deep historian or sociologist, but I can throw out a couple of things, you know, that I, I've, I know about kind of looking especially at Western history. Um, a few things, you know, first of all, the need for separation of church and state, you know, at some point, there was this sense um, with the scientists that we've got to kind of get away from spirituality as this explanatory mechanism for everything because we're seeing things that the church doesn't like, but they're reliable and they're repeatable and they're real, right? So that was sort of the flip side of what happened and why there was this need for separation. Um, 
but I think we went too far. And I think the biggest issue is, you know, there's also a whole sociocultural aspect of this. You know, when you think about women, for example, typically women, but not always all women who were very connected to the earth, who understood the power of plants and nature. Well, you know, a lot of them were called witches and they were hung and they were burned. So there was a whole, yeah. you know, social aspect to that too, of sort of getting away from the idea of holism in healing, right? And kind of alongside that pathway, we had some really interesting discoveries like germ theory, right? Where people were dying and we couldn't figure out how to make them well by driving out the bad spirits. Somebody figured out that this could be a germ. And if I take this antibiotic, it could kill the germ. And so lo and behold, the pathogenic model really took root. But then we decided we had a hammer and everything was a nail, right? And now all right. of a sudden, it's like, as, as duality, you know, as we're living in this sort of dual world, it's like a massive pendulum swing. You know, now everything means that disease is caused by something outside of me. I must be dependent on something outside to fix it. You know, we sort of just lost the whole understanding that healing is a return to harmony. Healing is a return to wholeness. And yes, sometimes that means strengthening our, our body so that we can kick out invaders of the system. That's real. You know, there are things that come into the system that can kind of take over our physiology and we have to be able to bring that into balance. Um, but we lost our power, right? That was the biggest issue. Like we, we lost the knowledge and the understanding that there is so much that we can do to be healthy and whole and not just physically healthy, because again, all these things are connected. When we're spiritually healthy, when we have good relationships, when we have a harmonious environment, all of these things are so, so powerful for our health. And I mean, there's lots of data to support that, right? It's, 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 um, it's mainstream. That work is quite mainstream. Yes. And let's go back to subtle bodies because for those that might not have heard that term, I, I think everybody has probably heard that term that would listen to this show. Um, but what in your perspective is our subtle bodies and how would you describe that from both looking at historically ancient cultures and how they've described them and the different kind of things that you've run into over your life to understand? Yeah, great question. Well, you know, first sort of the tactical definition, you know, subtle meaning um, more subtle than what we call the physical body, right? Subtle bodies are more more subtle. That is that they are less dense in material matter. And depending on the traditions, they will some will describe the bodies as actually made up of matter, just more subtle matter. And some of them will describe these bodies as actually not material at all. Right. So the metaphysics of the subtle bodies varies across many traditions and many of them have more than one subtle body. And they're they're made to help us understand the layers of our dimensional body. That is, we have a physical body. We have an energetic body. We have a mental body. We have a causal body. Right. So this is the way, for example, yogic traditions um, and Vedanta have described this, you know, Anamaya Kosha, the physical body, Pranamaya Kosha, the etheric or energetic body, Vijnamaya Kosha, the wisdom body, you know, and so on and so forth until you get to, you know, Anandamaya Kosha, which literally is the bliss body, which is your soul, really itself, right? So there's this concept of 
Um, and here I'm going to draw really from our Jan tradition, but it's very much in many East Indian traditions and beyond even East Indian traditions, I think. It's just my scholarship isn't, you know, in all places. So I'll speak more about, you know, my tradition and the way that we describe it, knowing that other traditions are very similar in, in the way that they describe things. We are embodied souls. Okay, so that's sort of first and foremost. We are consciousness in an embodied form. So we are all that again metaphysics differs but you know we many of us have heard the terms of oneness or atman or brahman or whatever right there's the sense that we are all embodiments of consciousness itself so first that means that we're all connected okay because we're all embodiments of the greater consciousness in a physical form and an energetic form and our makeup of the subtle bodies and even the physical body is all based on what many traditions have called karma. Now, what's karma? Okay, karma from some traditions is a completely illusory concept. It's just a concept that we try to hang our hats on, you know, to try to explain things. And for others, like in Jainism, karma is considered a very real thing. It's actually like the subtlest form of the subtle body. So they actually talk about, for example, the karmic body. Well, what is that? You know, karma is really nothing but our thoughts, words, and deeds. So that means that my consciousness, again, everything I do, I think, I feel, you know, has an impression. It leaves an impression. And so, for example, in Jainism, we describe how the soul itself is, you know, pure consciousness, pure bliss, you know, unbounded, omniscient. But it is encased by the subtle body, in this case, the subtlest of them all, called the karma sharir or the karmic body. And it is if you can imagine that the soul's light kind of filters through the karmic body mm -hmm. and informs what we also call the Taijish Sharir, which is the fiery body, which I think is probably similar to what Pranamaya Kosha might be considered, you know, anyway. I don't want to get too into semantics, but in Jainism, it's said that the karmic body and the fiery body could together comprise what they call the Sukshma Sharir or the subtle body. Okay, again, now what does this all mean? Essentially, what it means is that we have tremendous power on these bodies, and these bodies are also informing how much our soul's light is able to shine, literally through, in our life and for others, right? So this fiery body, this karmic body, then goes to inform things like, you know, the mental aspects of our being and the physical aspects of our being. In Jainism, you know, it's considered that those subtle bodies even drive the, the makeup of the physical body, how tall we are, how short we are, color of our eyes, all of that. And it's a bi-directional communication system between the soul and the physical world. And this is what all of the traditions say about the subtle bodies. It is a bi-directional communication system that is, is able to be utilized for spiritual evolution and ultimately what we might call enlightenment, liberation, however we wanna say it. This is why, you know, practice it. We do prayer, we do mantra, we do um, breathing, we consider how we want to live our lives because we're affecting our karmic pattern then. Right? And as we begin to release the karmic patterns that no longer serve us, our energy is more freed and we can feel what that feels like, right? It shifts our emotions, it shifts our physicality, and it also allows us to harness that free energy for spiritual liberation, which was really the point in these, you know, contemplative traditions. That's really the point. It wasn't to be more ageless or, you know, <laughs> live longer or <laughs> your hair, 
you know, all those things can happen, right? But it was really for spiritual liberation, right? And and for coming back to the essence of who we are, which is pure love. So beautiful. I love the depiction or the visualization of the soul shining its light through those other subtle bodies. And I think it was really interesting how you were talking about karma. And I wonder, what is what is the vantage point? Because karma gets thrown around quite a bit, but what is the vantage point in Jainism about like we're here learning our karmic lessons and therefore as we complete them and show up to them, they're released and that allows more of that light? Yes, absolutely it. I mean, that's why we're embodied. We're here to learn things, right? So it's the journey, it's the game, whatever you want to say, you know, the cycle of samsara, the the illusory world, some people call it illusory, depends on your perspective, whether this world is illusory or not. Um, The point being that everything is a pattern. You know, again, tying back to earlier parts of our conversation, everything is an interconnected system. And so, you know, if we want to hack our lives, as some of you know our colleagues like to talk about hacking things, you know, <laughs> what, are we, what are we hacking? We're hacking our, our karmic patterns. We're bringing to awareness what those are. How am I showing up in this relationship? What's the pattern between this relationship and what I learned in, in childhood? You know, we're, a lot of us are spending a lot of time in those sort of looking at those um, patterns that were set up in early childhood. You know, my dear friend Bruce Lipton likes to say that most of our programs and programming happen before age seven. And, you know, sometimes that sounds like gloom and doom, but it's not. It's just, this is what we came in with. Many people would say, this is what we chose. And we learn from it and we will create new karma. As we live in the world, we don't have to be, again, depends on what your goal is, (laughs) you know, but if your goal isn't like fast track to liberation, I want to exit my body and, you know, be, you know, no longer (laughs) body then it's a different story, right? Um, but if if our goal is to just continue on the lifelong journey of learning, loving, and growing, then ultimately it's it's awareness building. And how can we be more skillful, right? Yes. How can we be more loving? How can we be more connected? It's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing your wisdom and you know all your curiosity and bringing that forward. I think there's nothing greater than we can be is curious. I think that's a really high vibration way to move through the world is being curious instead of judgmental or or ha- forming these like hard opinions about life, but instead to just be in flow and be curious and see what comes and see what you figure out and and you've definitely done that from the time you were a small child and until today. And so thank you for spending time with us. The book is Healing Ourselves. I highly recommend it. It's a beautiful read. And there's there's a great section at the back of the book that really goes into like how we can embody more of our soul, how we can understand this interconnectedness, how we can connect with ourselves as well, some practices and things. So thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you, Shauna. It was my pleasure. Hey, lovely. This is Shauna Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Soul Frequency Show. If you got even one piece of valuable information, head over to Apple Podcasts and share a review with your takeaways. And follow us because we got lots more goodness to come. We are spreading the love far and wide. And you know where to find me over at IG at the Soul Frequency. Until the next time, love. Here's to positive vibes and powerful awakenings.